And our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Exodus one more time. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you have heard these verses before, but we will revisit the Ten Commandments once more. And I invite you to hear them now, to follow along in your own Bible, or perhaps just to sit with your eyes closed and let them wash over you as we hear this word from the Lord yet again. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you may not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Back in 2015, a sheep farmer wrote what became the most surprising New York Times bestseller of the year. James Rebanks, the sheep farmer, had failed out of high school 20 years before. And he claims that a girlfriend once dumped him after he spent $2,600 on a ram rather than a car. But by the time he got around to writing his book, The Shepherd's Life, he had managed to get married. He'd gotten the British equivalent of a GED. He'd graduated from Oxford with a double degree, all while devoting most of his working hours to the sheep that he had been breeding and raising and selling on the same public grazing lands where his father and grandfather farmed before him. And upon his graduation, he decided he would continue to devote himself to the shepherd's life. Rebanks is from England's Lake District, which is some of those beautiful geography in the entire country. But his book, The Shepherd's Life, is thoroughly unsentimental. His book begins at the end of the summer, and it goes through all the seasons and describes how physically and financially exhausting it is to keep up with the changing seasons of the weather and of the flock. But then towards the end of the book, summer comes round again, and Rebank's last words are this. The sheep can largely look after themselves in the coming weeks. So 
So I roll over on my back and I watch the clouds racing by. My new dog, Tan, nuzzles into my side because he has never seen me stop like this. He's never seen summer before. The ewes call to lambs, following them as they climb up the crags. And then Rebank says, get this, this is my life. I want for no other. Back in 2015, when The Shepherd's Life came out, it was that last line that haunted every reviewer who recommended the book. It's the line that got my brother to send me a copy of the book and say, you got to read this. This is my life. I want for no other. It's a haunting line, not just because it's an artful echo of Psalm 23. It's a haunting line because it is also so difficult for so many people to say, this is my life. I want for no other. Instead, as the theologian Stanley Hauerwas put it, Many people today feel as though they are forced to live lives they do not want or understand. Somebody here today was confessing again just yesterday, you are so exhausted, so busy. What makes it worse is you can't imagine what it would be like not to be so. Somebody else walked in here today, so frustrated, so angry, about something going on in the world that you cannot control. And what exhausts or angers us most is that we often do not feel as though we have any option other than to be exhausted or to be angry. We can hardly imagine everything that would have to be different for us to end the day by whispering to God, this is my life. I want for no other. I'll be honest, I was about halfway through this week when I realized I did not want to preach this message to you. One reason is because I know I need this message as much as anyone here, and I'd prefer to preach about things I've already figured out. I like to practice what I preach before I preach it. The second reason I didn't want to preach this message is that once I realized how badly I needed to be reminded of the Sabbath commands Once I figured out how badly I needed, I figured probably a lot of other people need to hear it too. So I wanted to wait and preach this message on a Sunday that isn't the last Sunday of June. I kind of wanted to save this message for September or January or May. We have a few more people in the seats. I don't know what we were thinking. (laughs) Deciding that we would preach on Sabbath during the one window of time in the entire year when there's no school, no elections, no tournaments, no church committee meetings, none of the things that typically exhaust or anger us. This is the one week when we might trick ourselves into thinking we have figured out rest. But our series on the Ten Commandments just wouldn't be complete if we couldn't take today to pay special attention to two special commandments that if we didn't know better, we might say are just a little bit out of place. As we've looked through the commandments together over the last few weeks, we began by looking at the first three commandments that have to do with our relationship to God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make a graven image. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. But at the end of these commands, 
kind of shoehorned into that number four spot is the commandment I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Is that one really about honoring God? Or is it about how I care for myself? Well, yeah, it's, it's both. Last week, we looked at commandments number five through nine. We said all of these are about how we treat other people. Honor your parents. Don't kill people. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie in court. But then once again, in spot number 10, we find a commandment that doesn't quite fit. Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. That word covet, we only use it when we're in church. We don't talk about it anywhere else. But its meaning is simple enough. It simply means to desire strongly. Don't daydream about what it would be like if you had your neighbor's life or house or vacation or job or car. It's the only commandment that deals with our thinking and our desires rather than our actions. And that makes this commandment a bit of an odd fit. Is it really about loving our neighbor? Or is it somehow important for our personal contentment? And the answer, of course, is yeah, it's both. Let's never forget that God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites when they were on their way to become new settlers in an old land. And as someone who has moved to a new old house several times now in my life, let me remind you what happens when you move somewhere new. The work is never done. The Israelites were moving to a place that was called the Promised Land, but they knew in advance it was always going to need just a little bit more work. They were moving to a place where they would have to establish new homes, new farms, new communities, new systems, new governments. But even with all the work they had to do, God says to them, once every seven days, I want you to enjoy what you've already been given. And God knew that some families were going to receive better farmland as their inheritance than others. Somebody was going to have the spot with the best view. Someone else would have the shortest walk to the river for water. Someone else would have the richest topsoil. And so before they even get there, God says, I am commanding you for your own good not to get caught up cataloging what you do not have, what you wish you had, what somebody else had. This may be a stretch to you, but it all reminds me of a story that the NBA coach, Pat Riley, tells about his first training camp after the Los Angeles Lakers won the NBA championship back in 1980. Coach Riley was worried that the team would show up out of shape, that they'd be complacent after having having won it all only a few months before. And so Riley says that he was excited when several players showed up to training camp in the best shape of their lives. He thought they were hungry, ready to go for another season. But after only a few days of training camp, Riley realized that he had understood it all wrong. The players who had spent the whole off-season working out had not been driven by their desire to win a championship. No, he says each of them had been fueled by the desire to become the new best player on the team. 
to take the leadership from their aging superstar, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The world champion Lakers brought back the exact same team in the best shape of their lives, and they lost in the first round of the playoffs. And Riley would later say that his team had been infected by the disease of me. He said it's an infection that breeds on the success of people who have done something remarkable together. As individuals, the members of one of the greatest teams of all time were unhappy with themselves, with their role, and so each person pushed himself to be better, and the result of all that self-improvement was that they became much, much worse. The next year, those same players came back for a third time, and they won it all again. And Riley says that the, humbled, the difference is that the humble team quit competing with each other and began sacrificing for each other instead. Each one began dreaming, not about what he would have or accomplish, but about what he could give up for someone else. And maybe that's not fair to compare the experience of the world's most elite athletes on a small, tight-knit team to God's instructions for an entire nation of Israel. But take a closer look at God's commandments for the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor and you shall not work, but the seventh is a Sabbath, and on it you shall not do any work, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. God understands how thoroughly our own individual relationship with rest and our ability to rest affects our relationship with everything else. God says real rest is not something you can buy by paying someone else to do the work for you. Real rest is about being content. But having one single day when you are not trying to bend the world to your will, one day when you are not trying to make yourself or your home or anyone around you into something they are not yet, one day when you will simply say, this is my life. I want for no other. You know what else is interesting about these two commands? I mentioned the word covet. Is not one we use in everyday conversation. The Hebrew version of that word, hamad, is pretty distinctive too. It does not come up a whole lot in the Bible. But do you know where it comes up first? It's in the creation story. In Genesis 3, verse 6, we are told that when Eve looked at the forbidden fruit, she saw that it was nehamad. It was deeply desirable. It was something to be coveted in order to be made wise. I expect most of us, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we think that these are the two that we can violate without causing too much harm to others. Surely Sabbath-keeping and coveting are less important than don't worship idols and don't do murders. I think the truth is, the reason we tend to downplay Sabbath and coveting it's because they are the easiest ones for us to do. They're the easiest ones for us to violate. They challenge the very core of who we are. If God gave us new stone tablets today with do not murder crossed out, I don't think I would take up murder as a hobby. It's not that big of an imposition on me to be told not to. But if I took Sabbath seriously, 
I take it seriously that God is looking out for me when God says, do not covet, then that's something that's going to affect everything about me. It goes down to my inmost thoughts and my fundamental desires. And it makes me pay closer attention to Jesus too. Because this is our fourth week in a row of saying that as Christians, we have to read the Ten Commandments through the lens of Jesus. And we said over and over that Jesus said all these commandments could really be summed up in just two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But if we are not careful, we reduce those laws even further. Rather than saying love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, we just say love God, love people. And we miss the radical truth that both of these laws have something to say about our relationship to ourselves, to our own lives. Jesus is pointing us toward a world in which our love for God and our love for our neighbors, our willingness to be kind to ourselves, all of this is intertwined and inseparable. We cannot truly love God with everything we've got if we refuse to acknowledge and value and enjoy what we've got. We cannot thank God for it. And we cannot truly love our neighbors with all their gifts and their frailties if we refuse to be loved in our own gifts and frailties, if what we really want is another life than the one we are living. We are not called to love God with someone else's heart and soul and mind. We are called to love God with ours. We are not called to love our neighbor the way some other neighbor would. And we cannot have a right relationship with God or our neighbor unless we are willing to love and care for what Kate Bowler calls the lives we actually have. And by the way, I use that word we very intentionally. Because if 16 years of ministry have taught me anything about these two commandments, it is this, that Sabbath keeping and envy are both what we call collective action problems. They cannot be accomplished alone. Not because it's too hard, but because it's an impossibility. It is a contradiction in terms. I cannot tell you how many families I have known start out on their own with all the resolve and all the conviction in the world that they would prioritize Sabbath keeping in our house. And then they give it up because they feel their own friends are leaving them behind. I cannot tell you how many people I've known who have said, I am going to be so generous with my time and my money once I've paid off. But somehow once they have what they always wanted, they discover they need some new experience, some new consumer good. It seems to make their friend really happy. I've seen it so often, now I can see it a mile away. I'm absolutely convinced. That the only hope for most of us to find real rest and real contentment is to find real people outside of our own homes who will share with us a real commitment to helping us through the real struggle. Because I'm telling you, the only way the people of Israel could honor these commandments is because they were a people. If you're a fisherman, you can't waste time mending your nets on Monday if you know your competitor was mending his nets on Sunday. But as you've all agreed, that there is one day of rest in which you won't get one over on each other, then maybe you can rest. 
We're never going to live in a world where a legal system imposes rest or contentment on us. We'll never live in a world where everyone the government punishes, where, where the government punishes folks who work too much or silences the advertisers who teach us how to covet. There will always be a people who work to unravel our rest and our contentment by promising us something better just around the corner. If you're a young adult, it might be the influencer who doesn't want you to think too hard about how they get richer and you become poorer and neither of you is happy because you want their life instead of your own. If you're a parent, the one who unravels your rest and contentment will be that other parent with a slightly manic look in their eyes as they tell you what your kids are going to absolutely love. If you love your work, The one who unravels your rest and contentment will be the one who says that your work won't really matter or make a difference unless you also covet power. Unless you spend more time with this group of people who really matter, the movers and the shakers, the inner ring. If you feel increasingly alone or alienated in the world, the one who unravels your rest and contentment will be someone with a platform. Someone who can make you believe that your voice is being heard around the world. All you have to do is want it badly enough. You have to want to be heard more than you want anything else. And all these people are not your people. They cannot show you how much God already delights in your life. And they cannot teach you how to say as if you mean it. This is my life. I want no other. But I bet you do know who your people are. I bet right now, as you have thought over what most stokes your desire not to rest, what most causes you to forsake your contentment, I bet you know already who in your life would know exactly what you meant if you confessed to them. I can't even imagine what it would look like to really rest. I can't imagine meaning it when I pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I want for nothing. I bet you know who in your life would nod along and would say, I know exactly what you mean. And I bet if you admitted to some of your people, whoever they are, I bet if you told them something has got to change and I'd love your help, I bet some of those folks would say, and I need your help too. Here we are, the end of June, at the one time of the year we can almost trick ourselves into believing we know what rest would look like, and we have learned what it means to really be content. And I bet that today, this season, this in-between moment, well, I bet it won't change your life, but it could teach you to enjoy it. I bet you could make a commitment today to enjoy a new relationship with God and with others and with the life you actually have. For some of you, it might be deciding today that your family table is where you will keep Sabbath when the world starts running again. You can decide today what you will say no to so that you can say yes to God and to each other. You can decide today what you will not buy, what you will not save up for, 
what you will not watch or scroll because it only makes you covet someone else's life. And if you decide today, I bet the rest of the summer is just enough time to find the people and the practices that can help you keep that commitment when life gets real. And you know what else I bet? I, I, I bet most of the world is most changed by the people who have learned to enjoy the world the most, by those who have learned to find rest and contentment, not in what could be or what should be or what was, but in what God is doing in this very moment. And I'd bet all my heart and my mind and my soul on this, that if you help Dolphin Way become a people devoted to Sabbath keeping and to not coveting, if you helped us make those commandments foundational rather than optional, then the world would be astonished. And I bet there is no, power, no witness in the world that is more powerful than a people who have learned how to say, this is my God, and these are my neighbors, and this is my life. I want for no other. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.